It's go time. You are listening live to Quick Kicks, a presentation of Third Down Gamble. Welcome everyone to the podcast this week. It's back to the regular crew. Heath Graham, Pat Mooney, and myself, Don Charbon, and we are glad you're along with us. And let's get going with what's happening at CFL Training Camp 2021. Andrew Harris, sidelined or just taking it easy for two weeks? Well, so the story goes partway through day three of camp. He took the rest of the day off. And then he decided to take day four of camp off. And now, according to O'Shea, he doesn't need the reps. He's going to take the the next two weeks off and they're going to work on their other uh, running backs, Johnny Augustine and a couple of newcomers. And uh, that's the story out of Winnipeg. My best guess, and this is pure speculation, is maybe he tweaked something or felt a little bit of tightness partway through that day three practice. And... A valuable player like that, they want to be ultra careful and have decided to shut him down for a couple of weeks and, and uh, probably rehab and work out in under a, a shroud of secrecy and be ready to go when the season starts. They may very well have a shroud of secrecy because, uh, you know, that that's big news if he is happened to be uh, injured. Or, you know, I, it doesn't sound like it's going to be a long-term injury by any means, but it does sound like he will be maybe uh, given some time, much like uh, the Raptors when we were talking about Kawhi, <laughs> we manage his time. Yeah, and load management, right? Um, and, you know, it, he is a 34-year-old running back. Uh, we all know the history of running backs and the general decline when they get kind of past that 32 years of age. And, uh, you know, the Bombers are being really cautious and are hoping to get a good season out of them. So, why risk injury, I guess, at this point in camp? If they feel confident enough that he's going to be ready for week one, then shut him down and, and uh, move on. It's kind of the old school way of looking at training camp where the starters would probably get fewer reps and it's all the rookies and guys who are trying to make the team, free agents, etc., that get more time on the field. I'm not as certain that... Uh, He's just taken a vacay for two weeks. I think he probably did tweak something, but O'Shea is very protective of his players, no doubt about it. You don't get much out of him about what's going on within the camp or if there is an injury. He's just very, very quiet on that front. Now, speaking to that, one of the things that they've talked about with the single-game betting coming up is injury disclosure. And... We know the NFL, because of the amount of money wagered week in and week out, are very forthcoming with the types of injuries they have. We see the complete opposite in the NHL, where they say upper body, upper body, lower body, and that's really it. So is there anything that can be done to make sure teams are disclosing that information a little bit better? Or is it really up to the teams and the information they put out is, is all that's asked of them? I think the biggest thing when it comes to C218 is that you have to be honest prior to game. They want to know prior to the week. So let's say uh, game one is Friday night. You've got to know before Friday that Harris isn't starting or the other Harris and Edmonton isn't starting or take your pick of players that won't be available because that's going to 
impact who you pick up in your draft pools. That's going to impact outcome-based betting. This is all stuff that the CFL has got to get its head wrapped around. If they're going to talk about how much money they can make off of gambling, you have to give back. Teams in the CFL haven't always done that. Uh, so I think they are going to have to impose some timelines about when do we declare the players for our roster? I mean, uh, I know having played fantasy before, you might find out an hour before game time that <laughs> the guy you picked in fantasy is not on. The, and when you're talking about betting for uh, you know, the CFL and if they want to be a good partner, they're going to have to come up with some guidelines that are going to align so that the betting companies and bettors themselves are going to feel comfortable and confident betting on those games. Especially when it comes to stardom or benchum, you have to know ahead of time. Now, there are going to be freak occurrences where somebody gets sick. Uh, something happens with the family and they have to leave. There's always a, a certain amount of unknown regardless. But Harris got injured in the previous week's game, and they're just being quiet about his status for the next game. I think that's where people will get upset because you could see maybe that he limped off the field. He hasn't been at practice, but you're still not making any claim as to whether or not he's going to play. That has to be a little bit more fair to the betting universe. You do. You have to identify a game time decision, at least in advance, so you know there's a good possibility he may not play. And that way you're making a bet knowing the potential outcomes. And you get into the categorization of questionable, probable, day-to-day, and those kinds of things as well, right? And and secrecy is not going to be the best friend if you're trying to encourage more gambling revenue. So hopefully they've got that sorted out and, and give us the information that people need to make informed decisions. If you want it to be fair for everybody, you have to be open just saying that the more information you provide, the more you're going to engender enthusiasm for the betting side of the equation, which they are putting a lot of hope that this will help stabilize the financial revenue stream of the CFL so that, as Andrew had indicated in our last podcast, that bums and seats may not be the biggest mechanism that keeps teams alive, that you have other portfolios in your briefcase that you can bring forward to say this will be better, this will provide stability, and you can go from there. Elks are at camp sporting their new lids and also might be thinking about starting four nationals along their offensive line. If there's any one part of a football team that I think has taken the most hit coming into the 21 season, it's been offensive line. So many retirements. Absolutely. And and there's a limited number of players, particularly coming out of the CIS and, and Canadians as a whole, even if they're NCAA, that are viable options to be playing. So it's going to be interesting to see how teams fill this. Often in the past, we've seen those Canadian players be on a practice roster for a year or two before they get their chance. I think some of these guys are going to be jumped right in this year. You're, you're drafted, you're on the line, get in the guard position and start playing. I love to see an all-Canadian offensive line if a team can get it together. It's one of those positions that suits the national players well. I think there's a lot of development of offensive linemen, both in Canadian college and American college football. And, um, you know, a lot of Canadian O-linemen are getting scholarships in the U.S., so there's, they're getting game experience with big programs. And, you know, it's a, it's a great boost to your roster if you can get four or five nationals on that starting offensive line. 
in recent years, tackle especially has been the domain of the American player. Uh, in Edmonton's case, for instance, Sir Vincent Rogers has been penciled in as that person. Now, he didn't make the 2019 season because of injury in training camp. So this is his first chance since the Elks have signed him that he gets to play for that team. Now he's also 35, which is getting up there for an old lineman. Uh, many other positions on the field, that would almost be time to call it a career. But on old line, you can play closer to 40. You can, but but like Heath, I, I think this is an area where teams, if they can develop those players and have them on their roster, if you could have four starting, bring even one Canadian tackle in, because most teams are, are moving to, as you said, Don, two American tackles, it seems like. But if you even have one starting Canadian tackle and you can fill the rest of your line with, or four of the five at least, with national players, then you're going to have the option to, to play around with numbers elsewhere. I'd love to see an all-Canadian line. When was the last time there was one? I guess the thing with having an American offensive lineman is you want them to be real standouts on that line, right? So I, I think of the defending Grey Cup champs have Jamarcus Hardrick and Stanley Bryant, who are some of the, they both, I believe, have won outstanding lineman awards in the past. And that's spots that Winnipeg is willing to put a non-Canadian starters in those positions because they're such strong offensive linemen. But I, I think... Your everyday offensive linemen generally go to the Canadians. The way of building your offensive line, right, is you want to draft that Canadian talent. You want to draft a, somebody that can come in and start for you within a year or two years and kind of build from there. If you go to Ottawa, they have 15 offensive linemen in camp. Now, some of them are penciled in to be starters without a doubt, but let's say that three are. That means two other positions are wide open for another 12 guys. That's a lot of humanity that's trying to get two jobs as starters. You're going to have an opportunity to make the team as a backup for sure in that situation. But it tells you two things. One, that Ottawa has been hit hard by retirements. And two, that it, at three wins and 15 losses, they've got to make changes somewhere. And maybe looking at their situation, they had to look at that offensive line to make that change. I think history has shown us that teams that build that offensive line over time then protect the quarterback. So let's use BC as an example. We saw at the beginning of the year, Riley was always, as you mentioned before, running. And he's always being hit and knocked down or, or had pressure every throw. As they got better through towards the end of the season in 2019, Riley's offense picked up. You see that happen numerous times over the course of many CFL seasons where that team, when they solidify their offensive line, they've got a strong cohort to work with their offense improves and they become a much stronger team and and I think there's a lot of teams that need that right now there's a lot of teams where the offensive line is somewhat questionable how do you evaluate offensive linemen in a camp with no exhibition games I wonder I, I think of the skill positions the speed positions you can really kind of stop watch and see how a receiver lines up against uh, a defensive back and that sort of thing but I'm kind of curious offensive line what skills you can see in a, in a camp with limited contact that are going to stand out and make them earn that starting position? I don't think offensive line is all about contact. You've got to have quick feet. You've got to be aware of the play call because if there's a stunt, if you're pulling, you need to know where you need to be. I think that's part of the equation in the assessment, even though you don't have a preseason game 
to really measure up against another team, you still have that defensive line staring you in the face on the other side. Now, granted, they're probably not coming at you at 100%, but there are still things that coaches can see. If your footwork is terrible getting out, let's say you're the tackle and you're crossing your feet trying to get out to the edge, they know you're never going to make it. If you're balanced and quick, chances are you're going to look better in the coach's eyes. And then again, knowing your assignments. If that playbook is alien to you, After a few days of camp, then again, you're going to struggle. But if that playbook makes sense to you and you're not having somebody yell at you and saying you're supposed to be over there, then I think your stats go up in terms of how the coaches grade you and that gives you an opportunity to make the team. I think a lot of that work would be done, as you allude to, Don, in the film room. Are you able to identify what the defense is doing, where your gaps are, how you need to move to uh, either if it's a running play, you know, who, who are you picking up as the defense shifts, or if it's a passing play, where you're going to go to provide support? Those things, I think that football IQ is, is something that the offensive linemen have to have. So quick feet, strength, the ability to drive block, uh, you know, pass block, all those things are important. But for me, it's that, that IQ on top of it that's going to allow them to be able to stand out in camp. The Saskatchewan Rough Riders, of course, got a just an unbelievable set of circumstances where they lose four players to Achilles injuries. Uh, Larry Dean now has had his surgery, and he shared that story with Three Down Nation. He was the guy penciled in to run that defense. Judge is gone. Elamimim has retired. He was the guy that the Riders went and and in free agency spent the money to get. And now he's going to be on the outside looking in. This means that there's going to be a few people in Saskatchewan that are going to have to step up, and that's going to be interesting. Dion Lacey, of course, is one of the biggest people that they've signed that as he goes through COVID protocol, he's going to hopefully get through it okay and then he's going to be the guy that could be their leader but you've got a lot of nationals that are looking to be penciled in as starters on that defense just the way that the uh, injuries and other uh, ideas coming from the coaching staff are, are playing out listening today to Derek Taylor on the radio hearing that the coaches are now putting uh, Mike Edom in at the linebacker position as one of the Canadians so they're looking at the Herdmans as a possibility with Edom as well rotating in so I think they're going to have to be a little creative unless there's some American players that stand out and come in they feel can just step in and fill that gap but there again they're not going to have that football IQ that a middle linebacker may need to be able to help be the key and cog in the defense to help other players understand what's happening. One of the American newcomers might be Deshaun Davis. Um, Just kind of looking at his stats here. He's 25 years old, came out of Auburn. So a big American football, kind of a power conference school. And uh, he might be a guy that that, uh, breaks into that roster. Um, He's going to have a lot of speed. Um, In his college career, 40 games, 266 tackles, 29 tackles for loss. Uh, so he might be somebody that can come in and, and crack that roster as, a, as an American player and make a bit of a difference for them. And if you look for who's going to be auditioning, look at the defensive line. Now that Freddie Bishop is on the IR because of his Achilles, suddenly everybody now has a chance to, to get on that roster. Uh, A.C. Leonard probably and Micah Johnson are the two that I would think are going to be penciled in, but then who among the rest do you want to draw up and say, that's my starter on the edge 
it's really going to be interesting to see how these battles shape up. Again, you may say a lack of uh, a preseason game may impact that, but on the same breath, you've got an offensive line trying to get jobs, know your stuff, make sure that uh, your pursuit to the quarterback is is good and straight. And if they're not seeing that, do they give Toronto a call? Because we all know that Toronto's depth chart is a mile long in a lot of positions, and they've got uh, Drake Nevis, Odell Willis, amongst others on that defensive line right now for Toronto. So are any of them expendable? And do we see a trade early in the season to kind of fill some of those holes if teams aren't seeing it in camp? Well, you do wonder with Toronto having so many of those uh, top-end free agents that they've picked up, can they really keep them all? I mean, you go through the list, you've got uh, Hughes as well, Judge, Deveris Daniels, Collins Jr., Moamba, Rogers, Nevis, Law, Breskison, and Odell Willis. I mean, that's a ton of people. How can you afford to keep them all on? I think you might see a trade coming forward. It's either going to be a trade or somebody's going to be cut. And it may not necessarily be from talent. It may be that they've got to get under the cap somehow. Toronto has a wealth of experienced players that are ready to go. I've ne- I don't know if I've ever seen an arsenal like that. And you look at their receiving core and you look at that defense. My goodness, there's a lot of veteran leadership out there. We talked about this in this podcast. How does it meld? How does it, everybody get together? Who's going to be the overall leader out there? You got a lot of big-time players. Who among them is going to step up and be the guy that takes them onto the field? It's going to be interesting. I think Toronto, they may be in a trade position, but more likely I think you're going to see at the end of camp some surprising cuts. Toronto's definitely in an interesting situation. They're holding a lot of cards right now. And if they can sense somebody is desperate, then do they look at trades? But are teams going to be willing to wait to see who they cut and pick up those pieces? It's, it's kind of a, a coin flip as to what you do as a, a team looking to fill holes if you look at Toronto's roster and realize that there's no way all of these guys are staying. And knowing as well with the age of the Toronto players, if they keep them all, they're not really building anything for the future. So as they see in camp that some of the rookies coming in or younger players coming in are at least close to capable, maybe have more of an upside over the long term, they may be able to start making some of those moves. And if I'm teams that need someone, if you could get a middle linebacker in Saskatchewan, they might be willing to make a trade right now. Um, you know, you'll see the same in others. I, I've, I also question Calgary's defensive line. I'm I'm not really familiar with who they're going to have this year. And in the past, they've always had such strong defensive lines. Uh, this year, maybe maybe some of the people they have in camp are going to step up, but there's going to be a lot of new faces there too. Yeah, I mean, you look at um, Charleston Hughes is 37 years old. Odell Willis is 36 years old. You're right, that's a lot of, a lot of age and experience, but is it worth the money? Or is there somebody young and hungry that's going to come in and take those spots? Well, getting back to Calgary, I think Pat is right that their defensive line is going to be a question mark. But they do have Derek Wigan coming back, and that's um, helped them out. And I think you know Mike Rose probably will be pretty solid. It's just a question, again, who's going to come off the edge? Who's going to do the, the work to get to the quarterback? Charleston Hughes and Micah Johnson were a great tandem when they were with Calgary, and even with Saskatchewan. But really, they... They built their numbers with the Stampeders. The Stampeders right now are going back to the drawing board and really saying, okay, we've got to build this again. Yeah, let's get a lot of players in here and let's look them over. The one thing that the Stamps are great at is recruitment. Well, they've got a lot of NFL 
uh, defensive ends in their camp right now, guys who've at least had a cup of coffee in the NFL. And so I'm sure someone will step up. The question again is who and how well they fit in the scheme. But if anyone can do it, I would think that Huff and the Goal and the Calgary coaches will be able to find someone in the scheme around it. Quan Bray now is in Montreal's camp, and he's clearly got through all his legal troubles to make it across the border. It's huge for the Alouettes because you've got Cunningham and Bray as two major weapons for Vernon Adams Jr. As we were sort of guesstimating who may finish one, two, three, four in the East, receiving core was going to be huge in the Montreal attack. Now that Bray is back in the fold, that gives another weapon that I just don't know, other than Hamilton, maybe Toronto if they get it together, who's going to stop the Alouettes? I think it's going to be a very exciting offense. And we spoke before about, uh, you know, with Vernon Adams Jr., if he continues to take the growth and the steps that we feel he may go, that's going to be a fun team to watch. Uh, their offense, I think, will will put up a lot of points. I'd be taking the over on most of my bets if I'm betting with Montreal in the game. Yeah, and you look at, I mean, they've also got Naaman Roosevelt. Has he got something more to prove in Montreal? I know he was kind of um, sought after by them and maybe left Saskatchewan a little bit of a of a bitter taste in his mouth so he might have something to prove there and uh, really step up in that receiving core as well and William Stanback is there and that's somebody out of the backfield that can block for the blind side in case somebody makes it through and help out and also he can carry the rock he can he can move the chains by himself I think that's huge I think the balance on Montreal's offense is just phenomenal their defense may be a little suspect, but we'll see as time goes forward. You're, you've lost a, an outstanding all-star in the middle with Mwamba signing with the Argonauts. You've got to fill that void with somebody. And he he was not only a tremendous linebacker, but he was a team leader. And that type of voice is needed in the locker room. And we've mentioned it many times about the Argonauts. Who's going to take that spot? Is that kind of a role for Armando Sewell. Does he come in and kind of be that that leader on defense? I think he will. I I know in Edmonton he understood what was being called and could guide the defense a little bit. And and that's tough from where he plays, but he was he was always a sort of a rallying guy and I think Montreal needs that right now on defense. One area that I do question is their special teams losing Boris Bede. That's huge and I I question who's going to be their punter I think Crepinia is going to be a solid place kicker for them but he didn't do the kickoffs um you know they're going to need to find someone who can punt but maybe also pin teams deep by kicking it deep Montreal they've got four or five kickers there if I'm not mistaken so there's a lot of job opportunity for somebody and the the interesting thing as always and it hasn't been the case lately with the CFL but if you can get a combination guy that can do kickoffs punts and field goals then you free up another spot, right? And that really helps out your roster. If the Alouettes could get away with that, they would. It's just a question of... Cropini is a very accurate place kicker. Turn away from that to get somebody that can do all three. If they're Canadian, maybe. If they're American, I think you do. If you've got somebody... I mean, that's that's the kind of gamble with, with kickers and punters, right? Is you don't want to have multiples if they're non-Canadian players. Um, you're more willing to have a, a separate kicker and a separate punter if they are both nationals. And it looks like they've got a lot of nationals 
uh, looking at their roster of the kickers that they have brought into camp. On the other side of special teams with Montreal, I think having Mario Alford return again, he was an exciting returner. I, I believe he took two of nine uh, punt returns back for touchdowns and added another kickoff return for a touchdown in the playoffs. So I do think he's going to be an exciting returner, uh, one to watch in the league as well. Brandon Banks, he's been making a lot of noise so far. Not all of it in the most positive way for the reigning MV, MOP, I should say. He's definitely a, a guy that speaks his mind. I don't always agree with what he has to say, but he's always an interesting person to follow. I wonder, he was talking about getting past Earl Winfield's records, and I wonder if that's really going to be the motivating factor for him in this season, because he is within range of catching Earl Winfield, and that is huge in Hamilton. He's a thrilling player to watch, and, and it's good to see him uh, back in the league because he did make a bit of noise. About, he was the first one to opt out last year, and uh, now he's at least going to be back there. And I, as I look at the whole roster in Hamilton, I question where, where do you find a weakness? Other than maybe, maybe a quarterback if the two-quarterback experiment doesn't succeed? I'm not convinced that it's going to be a two-quarterback experiment. I don't believe that Mazzoli and Evans are going to be switched around. I, I kind of hearkened to what uh, was said on the Three Down Nation podcast, and I kind of agreed with it when they were discussing that situation. And the contracts are vastly different. And the coach said that flat out, money doesn't matter. It's going to be the player that wins the job, wins the job. They were saying that if you start Mazzoli at the beginning of the year, that's the bigger contract. And if he doesn't perform then it's much easier to say, okay, Evans, it's your team, and we're going to sign you in the future. They start with Evans, and he doesn't work. Then you've got Mazzoli, who's on a one-year contract as your starting quarterback for the rest of the season. It's an interesting dynamic, and I think Steinhauer has got to play this very carefully. I really do believe that he's got to anoint somebody. I don't think with those two talented people that you can have them coming in and out all the time. That two-quarterback system, to me, is brutal. I, I'm always a fan of make it somebody and go with them. And if they're not going to work, then okay, fine. That's your moment to make the change, but not before. I do agree with what you're saying at $350,000. Uh, you know, I, I think you've got to go with Mazzoli compared to Dane Evans at this point. Had Dane Evans won the Great Cup and taken them all the way through, I think it could be a different story. But I think you start right now with Mazzoli and, and give him the opportunity to claim back the team because he was doing extremely well before he got injured. And if they're able to go through, it is a great cup hosting year for Hamilton. And I think the veteran presence is, is at least the one you start with. Dane Evans is a great backup if Mazzoli struggles. I guess, Pat, going back to your question of finding a weakness with Hamilton, they are a very solid lineup. My question is um, the loss of Delvin Bro to retirement. Does that create some holes in that defensive backfield and he was such a leader, such a shutdown DB that uh, if I'm picking a weakness, I guess that's the one I see right now. I believe Jamal Roll should be able to step in uh, to that hole that's been filled. I don't know. Certainly, I don't think anyone can be uh, Delvin Bro type of defensive back right away, but he has potential with a veteran core around him to really do well, I think. You need a, a shutdown guy to play short side. And that's where Delvin Burrow made his living. If you if Roll is the guy that can step in and, and replace him, then Hamilton is not going to miss a beat. And then those showdowns with Montreal that are coming, 
are going to be fascinating because you've got a very balanced Hamilton Tiger Cats versus a very powerful offense from the Alouettes. Oh, man, those games are going to be great. I <laughs> <laughs> can't wait. British Columbia Lions, there, we talked about it before, about Riley having to run last year. Of course, he, he finished the season on the injured list. If they keep Riley up on his feet, I do see the Lions performing very, very well this year. I think we were talking about trying to pick the West, one through five. How do you do it? And we were sort of off the podcast mentioning that it could be a win here or there that will determine who gets first and who gets fifth. That's how tight the West could be. Yeah, I'm still picking BC to finish fifth, but, 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 but I think they're going to be well improved. So, um, yeah, I think it's going to be a difference of probably four wins from top to bottom in the West. And there's going to be two teams probably with a tied record that they're going to come down to some tie-breaking formulas to see which one gets the playoff spot and which one doesn't. The one thing you mentioned in the podcast previously was that that BC uh, has the opportunity to play many games at home against the Western teams. But the other thing that that BC, I think, gives them an advantage is the ability to play in BC place and more temperate environment as we head into the later games as well. So, I mean, again, you eke out a few wins and it could make the difference between fifth and third. I don't think that BC gains that much from the temperate environment because the other team coming in gets that same environment. The other thing, too, is that they're not playing five in a row at the end of the season from October till November at BC Place. So they are going to be on the road. They are going to play in some cold weather games as well. A home field advantage absolutely matters. I totally think that it does. Maybe lesser than other leagues, but it still matters. Even if it's 55%, that's still an extra win somewhere. I think that the Lions, without Deron Carter there, as amazing of a player that he was, he didn't always follow the game plan. If Riley was looking for him and couldn't find him, okay, yeah, you've got Burnham out there, but guess who's getting doubled on the other side? I often wonder if he picked up some of those habits growing up in a Minnesota Vikings locker room where his dad played with Randy Moss. Similar in a way that they're they're really on when they are on. But one of the things that dogged Randy Moss throughout his career was he would take plays off. And I saw similar things from Duran. There was sequences where he seemed really disinterested. And I'm not sure having Duran Carter on your team does much for the team dynamics in, in the locker room. An outstanding talent, for sure but not always a team player and team first. It seemed to be more about Deron Carter. James Wilder Jr. is in Edmonton. He had famously retired, and he got talked out of retirement by Trevor Harris. That's huge for the Elks to have him in the backfield. And if he is motivated, given his size and his strength, he could really wreak havoc on defenses. He's one guy that could really turn a game because he is that talented it's great to see him back in the league you know it's one of those things when you hear somebody retires and they're that impactful of a player you're kind of sorry to see them go so it's it's exciting that he's back and that uh, the quarterback obviously loves him talked him back into getting into the game so um, you know they will he, he should go out of his way to uh, to protect protect uh, Harris as best he can and uh, we'll see what he can do 
if he can recapture the form he showed in his early years in Toronto, I think he's going to be a stud. And, and behind this offensive line, I think they'll have a good opportunity to pound the ball, particularly as we get later in the season. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean. Follow us on Twitter where our handle is at Third Down Gamble. Join us again next time. The Third Down Gamble Podcast. Audio worth watching.